and ask the Lord to lead us in this study of this text this morning. Our great God, as we come to your word, as we continue to study these Ten Commandments, and how they are affirmed in the teachings of Christ you have given to your church. We pray you give us wisdom and understanding as to how they relate to our lives and what you are calling us to do, the behavior that you desire from your people, and that we may trust in the Spirit to give us the strength to do so, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, during the 17th century in Scotland, January 8, 1697, at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, a young, a young man named Thomas Aikenhead, who perhaps many of you have never heard before, was a man who was on death row. And this day he was finally taken to the gallows on the road between Edinburgh and Leith to face judgment. And there the hangman pulled away the ladder, and the body hung, and Thomas was lifeless. Perhaps some people would say, another young man gone too soon. But the question is, for what reason did his life end that particular day? What act had he committed that it was deemed no longer appropriate for him to breathe another breath? The crime that Thomas Aikenhead was charged with that day that led to his execution was taking the Lord's name in vain. This was the charge against Thomas, who himself was not only 19 years old, but also happened to be himself a theological student. Now, why do I share this with you this morning? In no way is it to justify or seek to deal with the validity of this execution, but rather to show how different and striking the culture of 17th century Scotland, even though it was plagued by sin, like all cultures since the fall of humanity, how different they were to treating the third commandment than our culture today. For we live in a culture where the name of God is taken in vain all the time, treated with abuse if it's no big deal, part of the common vernacular. It's on t-shirts, it's on the local Netflix show, it's on the local schoolyard nearby, coming out of the mouths of kindergarten kids. But this morning, as we go into this text and look at the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, we are reminded that just because culture has changed and opinions have changed, this commandment continues to apply to the people of God. It sticks just as much as it did back then when God first gave it. And so we see this morning that the misuse or taking of God's name in vain is something that God is passionately concerned with, wholeheartedly detests, and is a sin that he calls his people to engage from. And so we're going to look at this commandment this morning and talk about it, and perhaps if in this group this morning there may be some that confess, well, I've heard this commandment, I've heard it since I was young, I've memorized it, and Others may be saying, well, I'm new to the church, so what, what does this commandment actually mean? What does it mean to take God's name in vain, theologically, practically? What does that look like? 
We're going to spend some time this morning looking into this matter. We're going to address three things as we do. First of all, the significance of God's name. Secondly, how we are to treat God's name, so the proper attitude towards it. And then thirdly, what taking it in vain means and some practical ways in which this is done. Not only in our world, but sadly even today among God's own people. So first of all, the name of God and the significance of it. I know a couple right now who are expecting another child in a conversation the other day. One of the questions that came up was, have you picked the name of your child yet? See, naming a child is an important act. It's something that people are excited about. And it's something that to be taken seriously because all of their days, provided the child doesn't legally change their name later on, this is what people will know them by. And so it's important not to be done lightly. I was on Google the other day looking up the weirdest names of 2019. And, well, let's just say I chose not to include some of them in the sermon today because maybe you might think they're okay, but I thought they were quite odd. But most people try to pick names with meaning for their kids because the name says something about the person. But that being said, in the biblical times, the names of people were even taken more seriously than in the case of today. For when the scriptures were written, the name of a person was not just a title or just something that people would call them, but the name of the person captured and represented everything about who the person was. The name of a person identified with themselves. There was a bond between them. So much so that to trust in a person's name was synonymous with trusting in the person themselves. For instance, to trust in the name of Christ means to trust in Christ. To do something in Christ's name means to do something according with who he is and his will. And we see other examples of this in the scriptures. We see the, the naming of Abram to Abraham. Abram was without a son, but now that he'd be the father of many children, God changes his name from Abram to Abraham, which means father of many children. You see the naming of Israel. And God renames Jacob. Israel means the one who wrestles with God. Which, if we've read the Old Testament, we see... That demonstrated quite well. You see this with Adam naming woman out of man. She came. So the name reveals a person's nature and their actions. It encompasses everything they are. And we see this is also the case with God himself. Now God is one of the names and common titles for God in the scriptures. God, you are my God. You are God. But the reality of sin is that there are many gods in people's opinions. People have chased other things and said, you are God. So part of the revelation of who God is is not just to be called God in a world where there are believed to be many, but he reveals himself, his nature, and his purposes to us by revealing us his name. That's why Moses, when he is sent to go to Egypt and deliver Israel from captivity, he doesn't just say, okay, God sent, sent me. He says, who are you? 
What is your name so that we may know who you are and what you're about? And of course, as we look at the scriptures, part of the wonder and glorious truth about our God is that he doesn't just reveal himself with one name, but many names to describe his nature and his character. Alistair Begg, who's a pastor and theologian from Cleveland, Ohio, says the way in which God reveals himself through a variety of names is part of God's grace by accommodating himself to our finite thinking, revealing his nature indeed through names in a way that we can grasp and understand who he is and what he is about. However, at the same time, his names also reveal another truth that is important for us to grasp. We talked about this a few weeks ago. That we cannot fully grasp and understand the nature of who God is. And what he's about. And that's revealed through his names. For instance, the name that God gave Moses to reveal who he was and what he was about was Yahweh. Except here's the thing. There are no vowels in that name. Meaning that name couldn't actually, actually be pronounced. They had no idea. They didn't do it. What is the significance of that? Well, Beg goes on to mention that it's a reminder that there's part God has revealed to us to understand and know, but there's always going to be a part that we can't grasp. There's always going to be a part that we can't pronounce, that we can't talk about. And so... There's a part in which God reveals to us his nature and his being and his character through his name. And there's a mystery of God that is revealed at the same time. And so we look at the scriptures and we see many examples of the names that he gives us. The predominant names. Lord, God, Father, Yahweh. The one true God. Other examples, the living God. The three persons, the Trinity. Though Trinity itself is not actually in the scriptures. It's the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Yet still fully one. And each person has a name. The Ancient of Days. The Lion of Judah. The Paraclete. The Helper. The Love. The Righteous One. The Light and Life. The Truth. The All-Knowing One. The All-Powerful One. The Holy One. The Creator. The Provider. The Healer. The Banner of Victory. The Shepherd. The King. The Helper. The Savior. And ultimately, the ultimate revelation of God Himself is in the name of Jesus Christ. The visible image of the invisible God. And that is the name that God has said is above every name. All these names reveal who God is and what he is about. So I pray that even as we take this quick survey, and I miss lots, believe me, that we're reminded that God is not just like any other being, but that his names reveal to us that this God is glorious. He is wonderful. He is set apart. He is not like us. Or any other created being. And so I pray that as we reflect upon the names of God, that we are stirred with amazement and wonder and awe. So the name of God is significant. The names of God are significant. And so that's the case. 
The second question that is not only important to address before we get to taking it in vain is how then are we called to treat his name? If it reveals who he is and what he's about and it is significant as it points to the great and wonderful truth of who he is, how then do we as the people of God treat his name? Well, we see in this commandment that God jealously guards his name. In Ezekiel 39, verse 25, I am jealous for my holy name. For since it refers to his nature and who he is, it reveals everything about him that he wants us to know, then God desires, like himself, for his name, which is part of himself, to not be treated like any other common name, but to be treated with reverence, to be exalted. That's why Jesus, when he taught us to pray, said, Our Father, hallowed be your name. And from the rising of the sun to the setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. We started our call to worship this morning with Psalm 8, two times declaration, beginning and end. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The Westminster Catechism, when question 54 in the shorter version says, what does the third commandment require of us, the people of God? That it requires us to use God's names, titles, attributes, and works in a holy and reverent manner. Psalm 103, in the content of the song, 10,000 Reasons, that if we have sung many times here, says that we are to bless His holy name with all of our soul. And so we need to ask theologically and practically, what does it mean to revere the name of God as it reveals God Himself? First thing we have to understand is that we are only enabled to revere and have reverence and venerate the name of God because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're only able to have reverence for God and God's name because we are saved. Because Christ has rescued us from the dominion of darkness to declare the praises of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. So reverence for God and consequently His name, revering it, is part of our salvation. So unless we're saved, unless we're redeemed, unless we have the Spirit of God dwelling in us, giving us new life, the reverence of God's name is not going to take place in our life, genuinely. That's why you see many people in our culture that are going around taking God's name in vain. Why? Because they're not saved. They don't have the Spirit of God that venerates God and that leads us into worship in them. So let's be honest, church. Why are we shocked sometimes when we go out in our community and we hear the name of God being taken in vain? Why are all these people, why are they such irreverence? Yes, they're sinners. What do you expect? Young kids, as they go on the playground and they fall off the monkey bars and they take God's name in vain. Sad situation, but ultimately points to the depravity of humanity and our sinful nature. But we, church, 
are called to revere God's name, to be a light in the darkness. And so what does it mean practically for us to look and do this? Well, our soul, we're to bless his holy name with all our soul. We talked this a couple weeks ago about our soul and what God has designed our minds, our hearts, and our deeds. And so let's talk about this with blessing his name with our minds. Now, we think, when we hear names, we think about names and we think of them in terms of importance. For instance, we, we hear the name of the president or the prime minister and we think power. We think of importance. We think of responsibility. We think of greatness because of their role and responsibility. Now, you hear the name of your favorite clothing company, you may say, ah, oh, that name, that's a respectable brand. That, they make good clothes. I know that will last. Or you hear the name of a hockey team and you think, maybe not the best idea to be cheering for them. I'm not going to say who. But there are certain names that we hear that immediately when we hear them, we think of respect, we think of quality, we think of honor. Part of us venerating God's name is that when we think and we hear God's name, we think greatest name ever. Worthy of the most respect, worthy of the most honor, worthy of the most glory, worthy of the most praise. But there's no one who's like him. So we hear the names of Christ, we hear the names of God, we hear the Father, we hear the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We, we immediately think powerful, holy God, creator of the universe, the one who has made me, the one who is with me, the one who right now, even as this sermon is being preached, is working in your heart, making you new. It's a powerful name, and so we exalt him in our minds, and we think his name is important. The Spirit of God wants to do that exaltation in us, so that when we hear, we think Christ, most important one, most glorious name. We venerate his name with our hearts, that our hearts treasure his name. You know, we all have names that when we hear them, our hearts are full of joy. Hear the name of your kids or your wife. Or hear the name of your favorite band that's coming to town. Hear the name of the latest player that was traded from your hockey team. And they bring excitement. The Spirit of God wants to work in our life so that the greatest name that we treasure, the name that brings us the most excitement, the most joy, the most praise and adoration is the name of Christ. The name of our God. When we hear him, he's worthy. He's the one who is holy and majestic and worthy of praise, and my heart loves him more than anything. That's a reverence that God wants to produce not only in our minds, but in our hearts. And in our deeds, the Christ name and consequently Christ himself is the name that we want to make famous. Now we live in a culture today where the, the number one thing that's being taught, even from a young age, is make a name for yourself. Life's about you. So you, you do what you need to do and you make yourself number one and you go out and you make a name for yourself. But for Christian, we must become less and he must become more. Our call is to make the name of Christ. No. 
May the name of Christ proclaim. People may hear it and come to treasure him and his name and all that he is. It's part of the Great Commission. To go and proclaim the name of God above everything. And to seek to keep our lives from treating it in a way in which we treat it in vain. Which leads us to the last point. We are to venerate God's name because it reveals all that he is and all that he is about. Even the mystery of him that we cannot grasp. In our minds, in our hearts, in our deeds, all of our soul, venerated things, all above all things, then what does it mean for us to take it in vain? Well, John Piper, in commenting on this commandment, notes that it means to treat God's name in any way or manner that empties it of its glory. Makes it common. Forgetting who it belongs to and whose nature it reveals. So, church, we are called to revere God, revere his name, and therefore God says to us through this commandment, do not refer to me or use my name in any way that empties it of its glory in who I am. So what are some practical examples of what this could look like in our world, among those who have yet to trust in Christ, but also in our own life? Well, the first example we're going to look at this morning is the reality of cursing. Not only is our tongue to be cleansed, we are sanctified. Paul says that you would have wholesome speech as part of your redemption. But people in the world and people even in the church at time can take the name of God, Jesus, Christ, Lord, whatever it may be, and use it as a curse word. If you don't understand what I'm talking about, let me give you a couple examples. You're driving, and all of a sudden someone cuts you off. It's a place sometimes where people like to take the Lord's name in vain. Or, if you're like me, not taking the Lord's name in vain, but this happens to you, you're hammering, and you realize, what I just hammered was not the nail. That was my thumb. People can use this in their conversation, saying the name of God in a curse manner, and as a result, is that treating it in a way which glorifies Christ, venerates him, exalts him, or is it treated in a manner which empties it of its glory and is degrading? And it's the latter. It becomes a curse word. It's not a name of the God who saves and redeems and makes us new. You're attributing that name to your sinful behavior and your cursive attitude. And so we see people at our work, perhaps, in our neighborhood, who hear this happen a lot. The question is, has happened with us? Are there times where things happen in our lives where sometimes our language isn't appropriate? And some of those times is the taking of God's name in vain.
The reality is it can still be an issue in our life. And God, part of the salvation that he has won for us, wants to rid us of that practice, of that behavior. Because it does not bring glory and honor to Christ. It's using it in a degrading name. So cursing is one example of how it can be taken in vain, not with reverence, not with praise, not with thanksgiving. When, you, when you've hammered your thumb with a hammer, you're not saying, thank you, Lord, for this amazing pain. Genuinely. The second example is flippancy, which is a cousin of cursing. This is where God's name is used in conversation or expressions that are communicated in, in just flippant ways, not reverent ways. For instance, in conversation. I'm amazed if I go into the Iron Prior Theater and I happen to see 15 tweens in front of me or behind me. I know this is not going to go well. But what amazes me is that I can, I can sit there and every three words hear, oh my God, or for Christ's sake, or God, or for the love of God, or good Lord, or Jesus Christ. And it's like, these are young teenagers who all of a sudden, this has just become common language. And it's not just them, it's everywhere. It's in the church. But for the Christians, God's saying, no. I don't care if it's a habit. I don't care if it's something that you were taught all your life is okay. No, it is not honoring my name. It's treating it as if I'm like some guy named Pete. For Christ's sake, for Pete's sake. Which one is more reverent? (laughs) And how awful, how awful it is for the church to go around and use the name of the one who alone can raise sinners and make them saints in a degrading and irreverent way. This world needs to hear the good news of Christ. needs to hear the name of the saving God. But we cannot just go up there and shine a light by going around and using it in common conversation as if it's no big deal. And don't, don't pull a Hollywood thing and start going around going, O-M-G. It's the same meaning. It's quite possible to use these phrases in appropriate contexts. You can pray, oh my God, and mean it in a reverent and genuine way. You can say, for Christ's sake, in a genuine and reverent way. You can say, God, in a genuine and reverent way. You can say, for the love of God, in a genuine and reverent way. You can say, good Lord, in a reverent and genuine way. The issue is when we're not. There's no weight, there's no glory, there's no power. There's no wonder associated with the name of God. And if this is us, 
commandment this morning tells us it needs to change. Part of the scripture is not just to encourage us, but to correct us. And so if this is something that we struggle with, if it's a habit in our life, it's something that we do honestly engage in, the Spirit of God, and this is the good news, the Spirit of God not only wants you to change, but will give you the power to do it. Will come and refine you so that your speech becomes wholesome. So the part of your speech and the way that you talk shines in a world and crooked and depraved generation where that's all they're hearing around You know, one of the examples, and, and this isn't boasting, this is just a truth, truthful example. One of the things that I experienced when I was in the factory in Dresden working, and let me tell you, you want to hear some wholesome language, work on the tomato line, watching the labels go by. One of the things they said was, Eric, what? what's with you? I mean, what's with me? I'm watching 500 labels go by. No, what's with you? You don't, you don't talk like this. What do you mean I don't talk like you? You don't say these things. You don't swear. You don't do this. And one of the things they said is, you don't even say God. You don't even say all this stuff. What's going on? Do you realize that the absence of taking the Lord's name in vain in your life will make you shine in your community and some people will notice and will ask you what it's all about? You'll have an opportunity at times to share the good news of Christ and share the power and the weight and the glory of the name. But if you're going around blending in with the culture, how will we any different? How will they know that we've trusted in the same name of Christ that we're using in the grading and dishonoring? So may the Lord purge us of that behavior that we may shine and stand out. The next example is another one that happens in courtrooms all around us. Perjury. Where people swear by God's name. Did you know when you go to a court and I say, put your hand on the Bible, swear by God, everything you're going to say is the truth. You know what Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew says? Do not take an oath. Do not swear to God. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Because if you got to go up and say, I'm swearing to God, I'm telling the truth. You're not an honest person. If your integrity is that much in question, if your yes isn't trusted, if your no isn't trusted, and furthermore, don't make an oath to God because if you make an oath to God, you've got to keep it. So therefore, don't do it. But how many times do we hear in people's conversation when they're trying to say something? Uh, did, you, did you lose the keys, hon? I don't, I don't think so. Where are they? I don't know. I swear to God, I don't know where they are. It even happens in the conversation of normal baby. As if all of a sudden, that's going to make your integrity more intact. Here's the thing. Don't let your lack of integrity smear God's name. Don't bring his name into your sin. And the sad part is, is many people who in courtrooms will get up and will say, yeah, this is the truth, I swear to God, and then all they'll do on the court stand is lie. No reverence for God's name. No glory, no honor, no way.
Next thing is hypocrisy. Which means doing something in God's name when it isn't something that correlates with his nature or will. A few examples to note this morning of people that did stuff in God's name that wasn't in response and in correlation with his will. Slavery in the South. Well, this is part of God's will, part of God's plan, of course. It's not in line with his will. You know, Hitler was convinced that he was doing God's work. Wasn't aligned with God's name. There's lots of cults that are doing stuff in God's name, but it's not in line with who he is and what he is. So it's it's hypocritical veneration. It's not true. And there's like there are lots of more examples. Hypocrisy is also using God's name for selfish reasons than true worship. For instance, when a politician throws around God's name simply to win the votes of Christians, not to actually genuinely reverently reveal him. Every time we make a claim about God's name, we don't believe it. Every time we make a claim about God being forgiving and merciful, and that we as his people who bear that name show anger and revenge and hatred, we're engaging in hypocritical behavior that is a result of taking God's name and treating it in vain. And so in some sense, there is always a way in which we are guilty of taking that name in vain. And so we need the Spirit of God, just like the first two commandments that aren't going to be fully realized until we are glorified in Christ to more and more help us be set free from that. These are some references to taking God's name in vain, but they are important to grasp and understand. We see them in the world around us. But we also see them in the church. We see them in Christian homes. But we're called to be different. Christian kids, you are called to be different in the sports locker room. Christian contractors, you are called to be different. Christian teachers, you are called to be different. Every occupation that you have, you are called to be different by treating God's name with reverence. That's one of the ways you will stand out. We are called to venerate and uphold the wonderful name of our most glorious God. You know, today and forevermore, there are lots of people on this earth. But forevermore, there is one name that stands above them all. There is one name that is worthy of praise. There is one name that is to be venerated. There is one name that our hearts and our minds and our deeds are to be wholly devoted to in proclaiming and making great and not treating in vain. And that's the name of Christ. I close with this. John Calvin writes that we can learn much from the imagery of a master and his faithful dog. When the master is attacked, the dog barks and lets everyone know that what is happening is not okay. And seeks to defend the master church because there is a name that is above every name. A name that has saved us. A name that has given us an everlasting hope. Has made us a sinner into a saint. 
a name that we are called to proclaim for our family, friends, neighbors, and co-workers that they need to hear. May we proclaim it with reverence, and when we see it being dragged through the mud, may we be like that faithful dog and bark. May we raise our voices and defend and uphold the name of Christ, because it alone is a name that can save. It alone is a name that is above every name. So let's not tolerate the degrading of our Savior's name, but stick up for the truth and venerate it with our lives. Let's pray for that. God, we thank you for your great name, the names of God that are glorious and true, that reveal who you are and what you are about. And Lord, we ask you would allow us more and more by the Spirit's power to hallow your name to exalt it in our minds, to exalt it in our hearts, to exalt it with our deeds, that we may not take it in a way which empties it of its glory, that we may not take it in a way which treats it in vain. So if we struggle with cursing with your name, if we struggle with flippancy with your name, if we struggle with perjury, if we struggle with hypocrisy, will you set us free that we may more and more revere your name and be examples to the world what it means to worship you and treasure all that you are. But when we see your name being degraded, we pray give us the boldness to speak up and speak for the great name that alone can save. And we praise you and we pray this in your holy name. Amen. We stand together and close our service by singing of the great name of God revealed in Christ as we sing your name. Stand and worship with us.